Welcome to the Reimagined Podcast, a podcast that seeks to reimagine faith and life in the community as we link, learn, and live together. I'm Greg English, along with Brad Hoffman and Brian Dupuis. Today, on episode 119, we have a conversation about the effectiveness of institutions and working within them and how this is institutional intelligence. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hello. Hello. Howdy. It is the great American holiday. Yes. Which one is that? Uh, <laughs> that's how Paul, that's how Paul right there. Right? Which one? Which I mean, one? Yeah. I just got to thinking about it. Whereas for some, it could be yeah. Christmas. It could be Thanksgiving, sure. whatever. But it is July 4th uh, week. Yes. So yeah. um, I was just thinking about July 4th and memories over the years. We yeah. always used to go. I, I lived uh, around water. Yeah. So as a kid, we'd always go down to the, the boardwalk and, and where the water is in between the two cities and. Fire, we always go to the nine o'clock fireworks show. Mm. Oh. You know, we get down there and cram in the parking in the area yep. there and put a blanket out and watch the fireworks. And mm-hmm. we kind of carry that tradition on with our kids. In fact, there was a couple of years we were living in Raleigh. We were, we were at, at seminary during that time and a nice little small town of Wake Forest. And we do the morning bike ride around the town with the flags flying and all that. And, but we love DC. And so we had done this previously, but. We were like three and a half hours away from D.C., mm-hmm. but as, as Brendan and Tyler were riding their bike, there was this thing that came over us like, we need to go do this. We're going to D.C. <laughs> yeah. And we went we went to D.C. and we jumped the Metro and got on the mall and we watched the fireworks there. And the following year, we took our friends, uh, Daniel Franks, who's been on the podcast before, and we decided to take his family and our family. He had a 12-man tent. Oh, wow. And we set it up at a little park outside of dc not far outside there yeah and uh we took him into the mall for that day and of course there's millions of people in the mall yeah, and yeah. got near the Capitol was the best spot on that wall and you could see everything down and yeah the stage you know like you see on pbs and all that yeah and we we're having a big time and all of a sudden it's a downpour of rain <laughs> yeah and we're soaking wet now and the show goes on and we go back to the campground yeah. cannot find the 12-man tent no really gone Oh, is that right? Gone. It, oh. It's like 12, 30, 1 o'clock right now. Yeah. And so like, what are we going to do? And we load up and he had like this hoopty van, you know, the old van with the velour seats in it. And, yeah. You know, and headed to this, I, I think it was a Motel 8 or Super 8 or whatever they were back then and pulled up and he had the window outside the building. We're banging on the window and waking the lady up. You know, she's yeah. dropping, you know, ashes on the carpet. How can I help you? You know, and we're like, we need a room for two. <laughs> and it was like the old Andy Griffith uh, when the darlings were being pulled up in the window. Yeah. It was like all of us cramming in this room. That's and we nice. went back to the campsite. Somebody moved their stuff in, folded our stuff down on the ground and pushed it to the side. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, really? yeah. Really? Oh, there were some fireworks that morning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, just some great memories of Fourth of July. Yeah, yeah. sure, sure. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you so, know, uh, in uh, growing up, we couldn't have the big firework, you know. The big ones that launch up in the air, they were legal where we grew up, but you could drive just a little bit further into Indiana. And Indiana was the wild west yes. of the Midwest. Yes. And you could go to these shops where they sold all of them, the mm-hmm. little mortar things, you know, where you made, we made our own PVC launching tubes. So you could drop these mortars in and shoot them up into the air. And so I remember going with my dad to grab fireworks from Indiana and we brought them back in. And then we went over to some friend's house. They had a pool and there was this big open field behind them and we were launching these things off and, you know, just amazing fireworks. No one else had them because you're not supposed to. And, and then 
partway through as we're lighting this off, somebody notices a, a glow, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, you know, about a hundred yards down, like glow and it's getting brighter and brighter. We realize that field is on fire. Like we lit that field on fire. So my dad, all he does is says, Brian, grab the box. We got to go. <laughs> we drive the box back to our house and he tooks it and puts it up in the attic. And then we go back over there as the fire trucks are arriving and, and they're, they're putting it out and oh, everything. Wow. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, wow. you know, it was a great, it was a great holiday uh, wow. as a kid. I loved it as I loved it. Now that I reflect on it, I have some questions, but <laughs> as a, as a kid, so make some others. Yeah. yeah. And the number of yeah. deacons that were at that party. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's funny. That's uh, funny. Wait, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, we have we we um, we always had fireworks. I mean, growing up, and you have um, Disney, you know, mm. so you have that. Oh, yeah. so, oh, like yeah. when mom and dad were out in Windermere, they had uh, you could go stand on the balcony over the lake, and you could watch from Disney from Epcot. You can see all Universal. You can see all the fireworks oh, being yeah. done, which was kind yeah, of awesome. kind of cool. You uh-huh. know? Uh-huh. I do remember back in Texas before we came here. Uh, the neighborhood we lived in was uh, kind of interesting that it was, it was huge. I think everybody went to this. I mean, they had everything that you could imagine. And you have to think about, you know, July in Texas on mm. the Gulf Coast and the humidity and the heat. And there was so much smoke. It was just thick. And it was like a fog had settled down on yeah. the neighborhood. Mm. There were so many fireworks that went off. And, yeah. uh, and it was like all night. It was just crazy. Just all night. So we had a neighbor awesome. used to bang pots and pans. Anytime there's a fireworks show, they felt like they needed to come out and bang pots and pans. Like it was a big thing. Wow. Yeah. Well, that there remind, you go. Yeah. That did remind me about seeing them from, it's interesting at my house now. I can see the fireworks at the diamond because yeah. they play on 4th of July. So I walk right. out the back door and I see those. I go back to the front side of it and I can look across and where they shoot them off at Maymont or the mm-hmm. other parks around the city. Right. Down, yeah. at, um, down at the bottom, they shoot them up there and they got like, Three shows in 20 minutes is perfect. Yeah. And I have parking. It's great. From the comfort that's of right. your house. Yeah, right there. That's, right. Oh, that's, that's the right. way to go. Yeah. That's so, the way to go. Well, I hope uh, yeah. everybody yeah. has a good, uh, enjoyable fourth uh, weekend and, and has time with family, friends, and whatever's going on. So happy fourth. Absolutely. Well, today on the podcast, we welcome Gordon Smith. He is the president of Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary, Alberta, where he also serves as professor of systematic and spiritual theology. He's an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance and a teaching fellow at Regent College, Vancouver. Many of his books include our Courage and Calling, Wisdom from Babylon, and Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal. And today we'll be talking about his book, Institutional Intelligence. So looking forward to the conversation and welcome to the podcast, Gordon. Great. Very good to be with you. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, it's it's great. It's, I, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. And anytime that I get to engage with a systematic theology professor always puts me on my, my toes. Those were uh, not my strongest days in seminary, but they were good days. <laughs> okay, but this one's also a grandfather. Oh, there you so go. So there's you an go. inherent kind of, you know— tenderness and generosity that you can assume that you can depend on. <laughs> yeah. Well, very good. Well, again, thanks for being with us. So as we began just our conversation with uh, listeners today, can you share a little bit about your story, your journey and how you arrived to where you are today? Sure. I, um, I actually grew up as the child of missionary parents. And so I speak Spanish. I grew up in Ecuador and Latin America, hmm. but uh, during my university years came to the conclusion that I was called to religious work and ministry. So he eventually became a pastor. And then one thing led to another. And my wife and I ended up in the Philippines where I served as the dean of a theological seminary there. Uh, largely, as the president put it, 
uh, we have no one else, Gordon. So it didn't kind of go to my head. <laughs> I was well aware that uh, they just needed somebody to fill in the role. But when I got into the role, I realized, frankly, uh, wow, this matters. One, I think I can do it. And it matters that the institution of which I was a part, a theological seminary in Manila, Philippines, uh, needed to flourish for the health and well-being of the constituency that it served. Mm. Um, and I had this, there I am in my 30s starting to realize, wow, organizations matter and how we lead them matters. Um, and then from there, I went back into the pastorate briefly um, in the Philippines, an international church. And then I came to Canada and I served as the dean of two theological seminaries, one within my own denomination in Regina, Saskatchewan, and then later on at Regent College in Vancouver. After that, I served as the head of an agency that worked with theological schools in the global south. And so I was doing a lot of traveling, a lot of evaluating theological seminaries everywhere from Vietnam to Romania to Cuba to Colombia. And it was really that experience that I realized, wow, some of these schools are really, they're, they're, they're delivering. They're, they have a, a clear sense of their identity. They know what they're trying to do, and they're doing it well. And some are not. And I began to develop this kind of, you know, just little checklist in my mind. Which, uh, what are the indicators of institutional health and well-being? And what is missing when it's not happening? And that, frankly, that's what ultimately led to the publication you have in your hands. Um, it was, was that experience. Yeah. And then I came to this role, 2012, um, and uh, worked very closely with the board and with the chair of the board. And one of the statements I'll make at some point today is that few things matter more than the working relationship between the senior executive officer, however that's designated, um, president or senior pastor or whatever nomenclature is used, and the person who's the chair of the board of trustees. That's a key working relationship. Um, that really has played itself out here. Um, but so much of what I talk about there, I live with every day in this role. It's not theoretical. In other words, this is my day. This is I live in this world constantly. Well, that's what's interesting in in terms of the book. You this is this is a history of experience. When you talk about um, having um, having watched and observed multiple institutions in multiple parts of the world, um, there's a great practical aspect to what you've been working on. I hope so. I don't. I hope I don't always just project kind of like my issues and my frustrations with this, that, or the other, and assume that that's the case with others. But what I find to the contrary is that when I speak autobiographically of my experience of working within vital organizations and institutions, that in actual fact, we find there's a lot of commonality uh, between, um, even though institutions can be very, very different, uh, whether it's a church or a not-for-profit like where I am, or an academic not-for-profit, or a community agency, or a government civic agency, whether it's the municipal or provincial or state legislature, or the federal government, which is so much in our uh, that we're aware of today, especially south of the border in the U.S., that is, these are all institutions that matter to us, and they're, they may be very different, but it's at the same time, it's amazing how many points of commonality there are between them. So the years that you spent, you just kind of went through um, some years of your own practice and and, and service. 
Um, I would imagine during those times, there was times that the institutions were were not healthy and not good. Why why have you stayed in that role and, and continued in the process when sometimes many people just like I'm I'm done with it. I just can't do it anymore. But you've got a long tenure there working in this. Why why have you stayed? <laughs> I. I, I Several answers came to mind, none of which were probably exactly what you were fishing for. Um, I think probably, this is autobiographical here, I think on the whole, um, one of the conversations that I have been having with my peers in um, senior leaders of academic institutions, a common conversation of late has been, what's the shelf life of the president of a university or a college or a seminary? Uh, can we find that sweet spot where we don't overstay, but we also don't leave prematurely? Um, so I, I sometimes have the feeling that my predecessor actually left a little early. It would have been really good if he could have stayed a year longer. He may say, Gordon, you weren't in my shoes. Point taken. Yeah. But I think on the whole, I, I have tended until now, at least to leave, uh, early my, um, I run into difficulties and I'm out of here and maybe that's temperamental or whatever it is. But my wife and I often look back to my first pastorate and I stayed there four years and Joella often says, you know, if you'd have stayed one year longer, uh, the things that you were seeking to see happen would have taken root more deeply. Um, so can we get a sense of what's the right length? And sometimes there's limited tenure, the U S presidency two four year terms. Sorry. That's all you get. Mr. Obama, Mr. Bush, Mr. Clinton, now please go home. Um, and you don't have a choice. But in, but in the Canadian parliamentary system and the British, you can stay indefinitely until you get voted out. Um, and I think oftentimes people overstay. So to find that sweet spot about where it's appropriate to say, OK, I've done what I came here to do. And now to pass on the baton is something for which those of us in senior leadership roles need to be intentionally accountable. Mm -hmm. So I've got three men, none of whom are on the faculty or the staff here with whom I'm in regular conversation with, okay, uh, what's, what would be the right timing in the case of what I have to bring to this organization? Mm -hmm. Can you define for us a little bit, just the term institutional intelligence and what do you mean by that? Well, by an institution, I mean, I'm using here Jamie Smith's language of a social architecture that brings together the talent and expertise of a variety of people to serve a common end. So we are trying to accomplish something together and we create a social architecture, i.e. an institution or an organization in order to accomplish that outcome. Um, so I, I like the language that Jamie uses, the language of a social architecture. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of structure to it, but it's a social architecture, it brings us together so that uh, I can leverage what I bring to the table against what you bring to the table to serve a common outcome. Mm. And just as an aside there, um, what it assumes is that together we can accomplish exponentially more than any one of us can do alone. That once we leverage our talent against one another uh, towards a common end, we can together accomplish much more than any one of us can accomplish alone. Uh, by institutional intelligence, I mean, then, the, the capacity to thrive within an organization or an institution and to contribute in a constructive, uh, generative way towards that shared vision and outcome. 
And I'm I'm just impressed uh, to use two um, entities that I engage with a lot. One, of course, is just down the hall here. Um, let's have an understanding that what's said here stays here, right? No, I know it's not. It's a podcast. But just yeah. down the hall here, I, ha- I work with faculty. And faculty very frequently as part of their formation as doctor, as you know, as PhD studies and all of that, never learn institutional intelligence and don't then know, have the either the instincts or the capacity to thrive as a member of a deliberative process of, of a deliberative body, mm. whether it's a committee or a faculty meeting and so on, to understand how institutions like this work and how they can contribute in a constructive way. And then my protest in the book to with Eugene Peterson, how do you dare dare challenge Eugene Peterson, but to say, we don't give enough attention to this, I think, in the formation of pastors who are going to give leadership to congregational life. How does governance work and why does it matter? And how can you engage it in a way that is not debilitating, but actually constructive and generative? So um, learning institutional intelligence, I think, is essential, literally to every last person. You're going to fulfill your vocation as part of an organization. You're an artist. You're going to work with an art gallery. You're a writer. You're going to work with a publisher and editor. You're a faculty member. You're going to join an institution and it's got, you're going to be part of it. That is nobody's kind of a lone, a complete lone ranger, solitary entity. We're all going to engage some level of organizations and need to learn how they work and how we can contribute to them. Even if it's just the community center down the street of which you're a part, your neighborhood association Mm -hmm. is an organization and you care about it because it's making decisions that affect uh, who can bring dogs into your neighborhood or whatever it happens to be. Um, That is uh, you need to, you you learn how this, how these organizations work. Do you think cynicism towards organizations may come out of the idea that we don't really understand how they work and we, we have our, our thinking on how we think they should work and they're not. So we get a little cynical about it and get upset. So maybe not the understanding brings out a little bit of cynicism in us. Well, (laughs) I mean, every last one of us has been stunned by decisions that were made by organizations that did not take account of our basic needs We've been stung by power politics. We've been stung by misguided decisions. And we then want to throw up our hands. I think some people want to throw up their hands now on democracy in the United States. What's the point? And I just want to say to to the Liz Cheney's of the world, hang in there because it's worth it. It matters. Mm -hmm. That is, don't, don't despair and throw up your hands. This matters. We want this to work. But yes, every last one of us has been, um, I mean, I think, for example, when I was at at Regent College, I I was struck by, for whatever reason, Regent attracted students who had given up on the church. And I part of our job as faculty and teachers and deans was to restore a sense of healthy respect for and appreciation for the life of the church. But why had they given up on the church? Almost in every case, it was because of power politics or misguided power politics within congregations of which they'd part. So they threw up their hands and gave up on the church, which they viewed as kind of anti-faith, not realizing that in actual fact, uh, the faith has to be embodied within faith communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we get cynical largely because I think we've seen it. We've seen the abuse of power. Mm. No, I was thinking as you're talking that sometimes <clears throat> for uh, people in ministry and ministry leadership, they will get disillusioned with um 
organizational politics or organizational outcomes. And part of that is how do you, how do you teach? How do you mentor? How do you walk with uh, people so that they don't give up? And I think that's the thing we, we, we get burned or get stung and we walk away when in fact the, the opposite is really what we need to do as we grow in this organizational process um, and because I, I know in your book, you wrote that one of the biggest challenges, the greatest source of stress uh, for pastors um, dealt with um, uh, character of, of congregations, uh, governance, board effectiveness and working relationships. Um, that's a given. But how do you teach or how do you help people like myself or other pastors work through that in a sense that they're good outcomes? Mm. I'll say two things in response. One, read, reread, and read again. Two <laughs> Corinthians. Yeah. That is Paul's uh, level of engagement with that congregation. And then the stunning language that he uses at one point, he says that he will not act as he has been acted upon. It's just um, his response to the way in which his, his critics, his abusers, those who violated due process, he refused to act as he had been acted upon. So I spend a lot of time in two Corinthians, uh, and I think uh, it gives me it 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 leads me into an appreciation for Paul's the disposition of heart that he brought into the the warp and woof and the challenges of uh, imperfect communities and societies. Secondly, I would say uh, you I, I can't imagine not having an older mentor, um, blesser, somebody somebody who's who's been on, you know, you know, in the battle and wounded and scarred a little bit, but hasn't gotten bitter and cynical mm. and kind of urges us to hang in there. And I think that's part of what's happening in two Timothy with Paul to Timothy is saying, yeah, no, that, that's going to be tough out there, but uh, he blesses him. And I think essentially says, be patient, think long haul. And I think of yeah, three older pastors, the age of my father, all of whom uh, called me to patience, to thinking long arc, um, the long arc of history, where does it lead to, to not despair? Um, these, these older men were just huge in that regard in my own life. That's good. Yeah. You talk about the effective, there's elements of an effective organization and there, there's seven of them that you listed in there. Can you kind of briefly touch on, uh, what those elements of, of an effective organization are? I can. So as I said, the, uh, this list really arose out of visiting a lot of theological schools over the course of nine years and asking which ones worked and which ones didn't. And what struck me was this. Those that worked had a very clear sense of their identity and purpose. They knew what it was they were set apart to do. In the phrase that I use in a new publication is, at this time and in this place, what does it mean to be this organization? Hmm. So I serve as a president of a university that is the product of a merger. And as the first president post-merger, I recognize that part of my job was to say, so what does it mean to be Ambrose University? Um, and I, what, what struck me is a lot of nostalgia for a previous time. Um, we came out of the Bible college movement. And so part of my job was to help us understand what it means to be a liberal arts university as over against what we were in the past. So mission clarity, I cannot overstate how important this is. What is it? We're, what is it we're called to do? No more and to no less. 
Secondly, I speak about governance uh, because governance is the capacity to make the kinds of decisions that are needed in order to be able to accomplish that mission. Uh, how are those decisions made in a manner that is transparent and accountable? And by governance, uh, this word, this is you know an Andy Crouch word. He's helped us redeem it. It's about leveraging power for uh, for a particular outcome. What is the outcome we need? Do we have the power? Can we leverage that power to that outcome? Thirdly, there's no avoiding the economic factor. Uh, for 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 every organization, uh, the the I think sometimes we are naive. We don't want to talk about money and economics. That kind of lowers us down. And in actual fact, uh, organizations by their very nature are financial entities. Bills need to be paid. And uh, we need to talk about the relationship. And it's an often a complicated one. The relationship between money and mission. Mm. That is um, what I find routinely happens is that um Board members, all they want to know is whether we balance the budget. Well, balancing the budget is actually not all that difficult. What's difficult is to fulfill the mission with a balanced budget. So that's the, the, the finances are a means to an end, to, an, to fund the capacity to deliver on the mission. And if we balance the budget but don't fulfill our mission, then, then what's the whole point of all of this? Um, so dealing with the financial realities, I think, is inevitably part of what it means to be a healthy organization. Uh, thirdly, or fourthly, pardon me, I, um, it's hard to overstate the following, and that is you are only as effective as the kind of, as the quality and character of the people that you hire, appoint, and place within the strategic roles within the organization. This university is only as good as the quality and character of the people we hire and appoint. And if you were on my campus today, I'd lead you down the hall. I give you a little orientation in advance and say, we're going to walk down the hall and we're going to walk down by the provost's office. Now, I would just want to say now, was I brilliant or what? I hired her. Just saying. <laughs> uh, <you know. laughs> um, that is, um, we, you either do this well or you don't fulfill your mission. That is, you hire well, and uh, hi, and I, I often will use the phrase, you hire well, you develop well, and when something's not working, you're able to say it's not working, and we need to, we need to conclude this relationship. Um, but without doubt, these are the toughest decisions we make. Budget tends to exhaust us every year, but it's not the most important decision we make. The most important decision we make is the quality and character of people that we appoint to roles. Mm. Uh, fifthly, uh, I, my contention is all institutions are located in, in time and place, even if they're on the uh, um, on the Internet. That is, even if they're virtual organizations, that that's their space. Um, and the question we need to ask about space is, does it serve the capacity? Does it foster the capacity of the organization to achieve its mission? And what we've learned in terms of our space is that we're too small to be able to fulfill our mission. And so we're in the process of di discussing how we're going to expand the facility in order to be able to fulfill our mission. I think it's uh, Steve Jobs who says culture uh, eats everything for lunch or however he puts it. Uh, I was really struck by this through the pandemic, that the organizations that flourished through the pandemic had an institutional culture that. I characterize as hopeful resilience. Uh, 
That is the capacity to experience setback and disappointment, uh, even to lament, but then to adapt and to innovate. Uh, Organizations, by their very nature, need to respond to new circumstances, new situations. The the history is fluid. It's not fixed. And therefore, dynamic organizations actually, as the title of a book puts it, they change in order to stay the same. To be faithful to your mission, you have to change. And if you don't change, you're just locked in wishful thinking or you're locked in nostalgia. But the capacity for innovation, adaption, um, uh, uh, rooted in a hopeful resilience. And then I am so impressed by the following, the number seven, and that is that no organization can flourish uh, in isolation from other entities and organizations. We did, we, had, we did a leadership retreat a couple of years ago, well, before the pandemic, in which I asked all of my senior leaders, what are the key affiliations and partnerships that we have that we need to tend in order to be effective within our mission? And uh, we, when we just, we filled the chalkboard. Uh, do you know what that is? A chalkboard? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. I, I missed, I missed the, the... We were all struck by, wow, we're part of this ecology, this network of entities, and we need to tend these relationships because we lean into and depend on other agencies in order to be able to fulfill our mission. So um, uh, for me, I, I, I remember being on a plane from Calcutta, India to, 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 to Thailand. And on the plane, I just wrote down, I had just done an evaluation of a theological seminary in Kolkata. And I wrote down that they're, they, they're ambiguous about their mission. They don't know who has final authority and decision-making power to decide on how they're going to fulfill that mission. Their facilities were exhausted and tired and neglected. They were clearly um, did not have good financial management of their resources. And I just kind of and I could just, you know, when I was on campus, I could tell there was a a lack of um, of hopefulness. They were dispirited. And uh, well, you see the drift that I'm going on. And I said, well, no wonder they're struggling. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think the one that. I agree with you, the the personnel appointments and things like that. But the one that I think is really real right now is really the church and, and looking into the strategic partnerships and how it is that we, just, we we're not just of the community, but we're in community and we're walking side by side with community in that. That also meets our mission. Well said. Well uh, said. Yeah. So I, I do think Amen that's a heavy piece of the of the future there and should be. Uh, but I was thinking about those things too. There's a lot of decisions that have to come in each of those categories and decisions are challenging, as you said. And uh, we, we have, at least on our team, we have a variety of ages from mid twenties um, to, to 70 uh, age bracket. And it's a larger team. Uh, and we've all had some experiences of making decisions, good and bad. Can you talk about effective decision-making it? Um, and what does that look like or how do people process? Are there some best practices that go along with making good decisions, sure. particularly today when decisions seem to be abounding mm. uh, and we're trying to figure out which way to go? Right. How do you do this? Who's with? And right. it's it's overwhelming as a leader at times, to, uh, at least for me. I have to speak from my perspective. But what does effective decision making and processes sure. look like? Well, uh, as you were talking, my temptation was to say you said you make Good decisions and bad. And I was going to say, I've only made good. So I don't really know how to talk about bad decisions. I've got to work on no, my... Every my, last yeah, one of us has made decisions we wish we had not made. 
We've made personnel appointments and realized that didn't work. We've made financial decisions and realized, oops, that was not the right thing. So we learn from them. And so much of what you're going to hear now is actually learning from decisions that were not all that well. And you look back and you can we do this better? So I, I find it helpful to think in terms of four. I'm going to say four and then I'm going to add a fifth. But um, the fifth is not the sa- of the same kind. First of all, be very clear. What is it we're trying to decide on? Uh, and this comes out of the ancient practice of discernment. That discernment is only done well when we have clarity about what it is we're trying to decide. Mm. So the decision and the whole Roberts rule, what is the motion that's on the table? That comes out of that more ancient wisdom is what is it we're trying to decide? We're going to buy or sell this house. We're going to hire or not this person. We have clarity about the decision. Secondly, we should be very clear who has the authority to make this decision. That is, um, so for example, here on our campus, we have all three kinds of, of bodies. We have advisory, and the senior executive team is advisory to me. And they know on a whole range of decisions, it's my call. And I appreciate it when one of my VPs says to me, even when she differs with me, well, Gordon, in the end, we all know it's going to be your call. And she's right. I have the authority to make the decision. At that point, they are merely advisory. Secondly, when do we have the authority to recommend to another body? So, for example, the United States president recommends or nominates a chief justice for the Supreme Court. I, I give these illustrations to show you how aware I am of your issues south of the border, just yeah. so that you know, <laughs> I'm in the know here. Current day, current. Hey, is, that's what he has. The, he doesn't have the authority to appoint. He has the authority to nominate or recommend. So you need to have clarity about that. And then when do you have the authority to actually act? So uh, I think sometimes search committees, for example, here on our faculty, they always get a little bit combobulated, discombobulated, I should say, when they've made a decision about a faculty appointment and then I overturn it and I just, we just have to go through the process again. No, all you have the authority to do is recommend. You don't have the authority to decide. And for what it's worth, when a faculty member gets appointed, three different entities have to sign off on it. So like a chief justice of the United States Supreme court, both the Senate and the president have to agree. Uh, the Senate can actually de- can actually make a recommendation. The president has to recommend. So where is the decision being made and what role do we have in that decision? Thirdly, and this is as big as anything. And that is to we enter into a deliberative process. And by a deliberative process, I mean the give and take where we realize that no one of us has all the wisdom that is needed for the decision we're trying to make. We're going to listen, we're going to speak, we're going to contribute, but we're part of a deliberative process. And I think for me, that's what I'm, I wish I could. I have a faculty interview of of a prospective business faculty member tomorrow. I'd love to know with this candidate for this job, does this person know how to participate in a deliberative process with colleagues who are, who have every right to speak as well? Um, so what I listen for on faculties or other entities is when somebody's just a bully, that is, they do not know how to participate in the deliberative process. They do not know, say within the U S Senate or Congress, how to be part of a bipartisan, uh, uh, deliberative process that's going to lead to legislation 
that can serve the constituencies we both are responsible to. Some people just simply don't know how to. Uh, They don't know how to participate in a deliberative process. Hmm. When we do, though, I think it is important for us not to assume that um, that the minority voice is dismissed or demonized. Uh, You and I might differ, but can we differ in a way that is constructive, generative and respectful? So, yes, I got outvoted, but I'm grateful that they still heard my voice at the table Mm -hmm. as a minority voice. And then fourthly and lastly is is, uh, we're only effective decision makers if we actually make a decision. And so in the manuscript or in the book, I speak about the culture of autocracy and uh, how uh, many of us are part of communities or decision making processes where people don't let the decision get made. They know how to stymie the decision. They know how to filibuster to use again U.S. Congress. I just find the U.S. Congress is a really helpful kind of a case study that is to keep the decision from being made. Yeah. No, a vote's going to go to the table and uh, and it's going to be made. We need to be able to choose. So sometimes there's a deadline. I have to make a decision at this university by mid-March of every year. We have to decide on what's going to be our budget for the next fiscal year. We've got the decision has to be made. We need to know where it's going to be made. We need a a strong deliberative process that leads us to it. And then we need to act. Um, Along the way, I find it really helpful to ask, what is the emotional tenor of this process and what are we afraid of? So I will often do this with my senior executive team when we're trying to make a decision. I will ask, what is the fear that is percolating around this conversation. Can we name it? Can we bring it into the front, into the forefront of our conversation? Can we name the fear that might keep us from doing what we need to do? Because it seems to me courage needs to, needs to inform every decision we make. So then we need to name the thing that might keep us from doing that. Mm. I said there were four, those are my four. What is the issue? Who has the authority to decide what role do we have in this process? Can we enter into deliberative process and then can we act? But I'm going to add a fifth. And I'm, I'm convinced that all four of these are only done effectively if there's a good moderator or a good chair to the process. And for me, that makes all the difference in the world. One of the gifts that is given to us or any organization is, a, is the capacity to chair or moderate the deliberative process. And um, that's what I mean, I'm just very grateful for the person who chairs the board of governors of this university. She's brilliant at this. She helps the board decide what's the issue that's on the table. Um, Does this belong with the board or does it belong with the executive or does this belong to the faculty? This is our responsibility as a board. And then she throws it onto the table. Let's have this conversation. She protects the minority voice. She encourages the minority voice. And then she calls for the decision. Mm. And once the majority have chosen, it's done. And, and nobody's allowed, in a sense, to derail the capacity of the board to do its work. It's amazing to watch that work well. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing when around the table. So one of the things that impressed me with my current chair My previous chair insisted that all decisions would be unanimous. And I appreciated his heart on that. But the problem was there were two 
long-term decisions that we needed to make, but could not make because there was always a minority voice that protested. And when Debbie became the chair, she said, no, no, we can make tough decisions and we can just learn what it means to get outvoted and to get outvoted graciously. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful that she made the decision. And the person who had been kind of holding us up from making those decisions actually at one point just said, Gordon, I will defer to the will of the majority. And it's an act of humility, but it's an act of realizing that's how organizations work. I'm going to get outvoted. Mm-hmm. Decisions are going to be made that I don't agree with. Just assume that. But mm-hmm. for the sake of the whole, you defer to the whole. You defer to the in, in the case of the of the president's cabinet at this university, the, dis, the decision on the budget is the president's. And, and every last member of the president's cabinet disagreed with something that we decided on. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's how this works. <laughs> yeah, that's how this works. So, you know, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to say facetiously get over it, but that is part of how organizations work is that decisions get made that you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, if you always insist on your own way, then uh, you, you're not going to thrive within an organization. <clears throat> but that's an art to learn. I mean, and it's probably something that has to be taught in a, to, to learn graciousness and peace and patience in that process. And what does it mean to be collaborative <clears throat> and to work together. And even if you don't agree on everything, how do you still move forward in a productive, vital and clear way? Yeah. You know? I wonder, I wonder, Brad, <laughs> if we learn this with siblings on the playground, mm, mm. that is, I wonder if, um, you know, I, I, I have, one of my sons has three children, two daughters and a son, and the son is the youngest. And, uh, and he adores his older sisters, except when they presume to kind of be parental or whatever it happens to be. Right, right. But, I, but I wonder if it's in play within family systems that we learn some of that. And that some, if we don't learn it uh, uh, within our families, where, where children observe their parents deferring to one another, debating, maybe even arguing, but then say, OK, this is what we're going to do. And they defer to one another. But that capacity, as Paul puts it, to be subject one to another is learned both, I think, in the playground and as the family systems, but then also, of course, within the context of congregational life. Mm. That's mm. good. That's good. Yeah. I was thinking about even even one of those learning curves is is learning your feelings, being aware of those, recognizing that you're not going to get it every time. But yeah. don't let those feelings control you or your view mm of what's happening out there as well. But I I have my heroes in this regard. One of them is John McCain. His, the words that he spoke at his concession speech, that President Obama is my president, was just a staggering class act. Um, He knew he had been outvoted. End of discussion. Mm. President Obama is the president and I'm going to work with him, he said. And then Al Gore did the same thing when George Bush was elected. And the Supreme Court made a decision that they were not going to do the recount in Florida. And Al Gore said, well, then it's done. I defer. Uh, those two men, just for me, giants um, in terms of their, their graciousness to acknowledge that they had been outvoted. So what advice uh, are you giving and would you give to uh, leaders today 
uh, now that are desiring to or in the middle of running an organization where things have pivoted or changed or they're developing? What's what's the top key advice there? Um, I'm going to say two things. I know you said just one, but I'm going to say two. Uh, one is um, all of us in senior leadership roles need to tend the the tend to a resilient hopefulness. There's just I I cannot afford to be a cynic. Mm-hmm. Once I'm a cynic, I'm useless here. Mm-hmm. Once I've lost hope for this organization, I need to just park it. I need to just go downstairs and go home, and and that 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 hopefulness which is actually a deeply theological principle. I'm convinced of who sits on the throne of the universe. Mm. Um, so I, um, I, I've just published a, a book on vocation, work and career. And I, the co- closing chapters on hope. And I'm convinced that that is something that needs to be tended and that that's what I want to do within this institution. And then uh, secondly is to tend the governance process. That is, how does governance work here? How does decision-making work? And to uh, to tend to that, uh, to serve that process. Yeah, two, two really good good points there. They kind of stick you a little bit, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think the hopefulness piece is, is huge. And, and how do you tend that? I mean, hope tended. I mean, that's a... That's a good phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, Gordon, how can people connect with you and learn more about institutional intelligence or your new work coming out? What's the best contact? Uh, well, I have a website at least that my son tends. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Uh, my son, Micah. Thank you very much. But um, uh, I'm a big fan of InterVarsity Press. Somebody asked me the other day, why do you publish only with InterVarsity? And I, I realized I'm giving back. When, in the 1970s, when I was a university student, the InterVarsity Press book table at our university was such a gift to me that now I want to give back and give back through them. So the IV Press um, uh, website probably is the best way to access my resources, um, at least the books that I have published with them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time, your insights, and the material that you've put out is, is very thought-provoking. And I, w- I will say it, it's a practitioner's uh, view too. So yeah. oh, I, that's yeah. why I appreciate it so much. Yeah. So thank Great. you so much for being on the podcast today. Excellent. My pleasure, Greg. And thank you for joining us on the Reimagine podcast. As always, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and Overcast, and you can rate and share any episode. You can check us out on reimaginecast.com. So for Brad and Brian, I'm Greg. Thanks for listening to the Reimagine podcast.